0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com.
0: I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. Whether it's your favorite day of the season or you avoid it like the plague, there's no debating it's a big day for the world of food and hospitality. Valentine's
2: Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I don't feel that my manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a rosé champagne.
1: It's an old Jamaican drink from way back, and we just decided to bring it back into existence. A drink that the men,
3: they believe it really does wonders.
0: Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hello, welcome to Japanese, I'm your host, Hema, food writer, director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep, deep understanding of Japanese cuisine and America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We, sushi, we see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi around Isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Ron Silver, who is the chef-owner of Bubby's. Bubby's opened in 1990, and is now one of the iconic American restaurants in New York City, serving delicious breakfast burgers, pancakes, as well as beautiful pies. What you may not know about Bubby's is that there are six Bubby's locations in Japan now. So today we'll discuss why and how Ron decided to open Bubby's in Japan, and his experience with Japanese market and culture, and how he is inspired by Japan as a chef, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Video Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs, and please write a review. We appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at needs at org or com. Now, let's start our conversation with Ron Silver. Hello, Ron. Welcome.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, uh, this is really exciting. I'm a big fan of Bubbies. So, uh, so first of all, I heard you are born in Brooklyn and uh, moved to Utah. Uh,
4: I was born in Manhattan. Okay. And... Uh, I believe I was conceived in Brooklyn, though. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay.
1: Uh,
4: and moved to Utah mm. at a young age.
1: Hey, right. and uh, what did you eat when you grew up?
4: That is a very interesting question. <laughs> um, my mother was a very experimental cook uh, because she was from New York City. Uh, you know, so we we had a lot of strange, you know, gourmet magazine kind of meals. And the people around me were very much eating what I would call sort of trashier food. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Which I really had a great love for early on.
1: Like everybody else, I guess. (laughs) Yes,
4: like American, you know, macaroni and cheese and pork chops with mushroom gravy and things like that. Mm.
1: Well, that's interesting, right? Because I I think... It's not so bad. If you cook it well with good ingredients, they're pretty good food, too.
4: It's amazing. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, it really is good food. It can be a little heavy American food, I think. But when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, it was really very much about a packet of this and a can of that. So Mm. it wasn't really that good. It wasn't healthy. Mm. But it was delicious.
3: Right.
1: Okay, so, and, uh, so you, are, you became into cooking because of your mother's experience and the experiments, maybe, with would mother.
4: Well, I think that she absolutely had a big influence on me um, in all kinds of things that I do. Um, and I also just had a natural curiosity for all kinds of, you know, I sort of had an uh, early map of where everything was growing. I grew up in a place where things still grew wild. Um, there was sort of agriculture and suburban crashing up against each other. Mm. So there was wild asparagus growing in the spring, and peas, and grapes, and apples, and all kinds of things. Mm. I kind of knew where all of those things were. And I also started cooking at a very young age. Oh wow! Yeah,
1: again because you were a mother.
4: Because my mother forbid me to play with knives and fire. Uh. I think I was more like that.
1: <laughs> right. So you went against whatever she said.
4: Yes, I love mischief.
1: Right. <laughs> um, so, so actually, you, uh, you didn't go to culinary school, but you came to New York and started cooking. Is that what happened?
4: Well, I decided at a certain point, I, I started washing dishes when I was young about 13, and I I just thought that that was going to be my job forever because I really liked it. Um, and then I, I decided at some point to become a cook. Um, and I was going to go to cooking school, but I just started cooking, and then I, I moved to Atlanta when I was about 21 and worked for some really good people there, and then I moved to New York when I was offered a job in New York City.
1: Mm, so who offered you a job?
4: Well, I was, I, I was flown here to cook a, a party for 450 people at the Guggenheim Museum. Wow. And that company offered me a, a job to be the chef of the catering company.
1: Mm, sounds eighties. like a major <laughs> opportunity.
4: It was great. Great to land here with a job. Unfortunately, I only kept that job for about three days due to my love of mischief mm. uh, and Deep down unemployability.
1: Okay, so shall I ask you about what you did? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe not next time.
4: Certainly mischievous, I would say, and, and almost harmless, but you mm. know, not professional.
1: Okay. Yeah. So maybe later off the record. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then you worked at uh, Florent.
4: Yes, after after I was a chef, I, I I'm also an artist, and so I decided to take an easier job cooking eggs at uh, Florent. Uh,
1: That's another iconic, and um, sad to say, it's closed now. But it was amazing.
4: Well, strangely, I have our, our high, Bubby's Highline is right next door to where Florent was, mm. and a block away from where my other job was, the mm. catering chef job.
1: Wow. Yeah. so that you disdain to stay in that area I suppose like. so right. so um, how did you find experience at uh, the Florent because it's such a I think influential place in many ways for artists and uh, as a cook maybe
4: well you know the reason I worked there is because I ate there before and I took a job that I was very much overqualified for just cooking eggs so it was fun I mean, really cooking for people from you know, seven in the morning until whatever eleven. It's right. a good <laughs> crowd of people at Florent,
3: mm,
1: right? And it's a, such a interesting community, right? The customers, and I'm sure it was very inspiring for you.
4: Yeah, no, it's it was amazing. Roy Lichtenstein, and you know, and, and lots of interesting people and artists, and you know, just the people that were around town at that time.
1: Mm. Right. So, uh, so in 1990, you opened the Bubbies yes. in Tribeca at the corner of Hudson and Northmore Street. So, why why did you open it?
4: Well, I essentially I, I landed there in a in a because it was available to use while somebody was trying to sell their business. It was a sort of vacant kitchen, and. I had a deal with the person who had the lease there that we we could use the kitchen, but nobody could know we were there, and uh, which was difficult because the entire neighborhood really smelled like pie, and we had you know, started <laughs> a pie company, and uh, you know we were doing pretty well right from the beginning, and a lot of people in the neighborhood just started coming up to the back door and knocking on the door and asking for pie, and so uh, I I sort of maybe in October, started asking the, the guy who had the lease if we could open up for one day at Thanksgiving just to sell pie. And he said no. And, you know, I sort of asked him every single day. It became a joke. And, you know, finally, maybe four or three, three days before Thanksgiving in 1990, he said that we could open for one day. Mm. And uh, so we got the place ready in one day, opened up, And sold a bunch of pie and the next day had Thanksgiving dinner with for a bunch of friends because it was all cleaned up and um, my partner then and I got drunk and I suggested that we just open the next day too because the guy wasn't around who had the lease and so we did and he didn't show up for another three weeks and when he did come in uh, you know we were very busy for lunch. <laughs> he looked at me and I was like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. He's like, whatever. And he just said, keep going. And then we, we ended up just working it out in April.
1: Wow. yeah, Awesome. So, but it's interesting that you wanted kind of pursuing your career as an artist. But then you suddenly decided to just, you know, open this uh, pie place.
4: Well... First of all, I, I do feel like uh, pies and cooking is an art, and also I had the, to pay rent, and you know it was I, I didn't feel that I was ever going to make a living off of art, and so, and I I really was not happy working for other people. So even though it, was, it took a very very long time before I was able to to do art on a regular basis. Uh, I think it did. It did work out in the long run.
1: Mm, Right. So the concept of bubbies, how do you describe it?
4: Well, I would call it uh, American home cooking, but you know, with with very thoughtfully sourced ingredients. Mm.
1: So, what's uh, the the, where does that concept come from? Your childhood, or
4: well. Initially, I would say, yes, it comes from my childhood. Um, in the long run, I, you know, I, I've always been very proud of being an American uh, and of the way that different groups of people have come to America and they bring their food with them. And inevitably, the way that that food is incorporated into the American table is sort of representative of how, how those people are incorporated in, onto the American landscape. And it happens for different reasons at different times. So this is obviously a, a, a good time to be looking at that, um, the political landscape, and to see what America really is.
3: Mm.
4: So for me, it's about really everybody sitting down at a table and sharing the food that they sort of grew up with which is very much based on culture and region and all kinds of things like mm, that.
3: Right. Mm.
4: And taking the time to understand that that there are people—it's about a community of people who produce all the food that we also eat—and there's a lot to it. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of waste that could be stopped, and there's there's a lot of sort of appreciation that I think that comes through really sitting at the table and having a conversation and participating in the food situation.
1: Mm, Right. So um, I understand you're deeply rooted, uh, have close relationships with uh, the producers, and uh, you make everything from scratch that you're known for. But it sounds like, you know, your menu items are very classic American. Yes. Versus, you know, like like just you just, just described so many immigrants influence bring in so many different things to this country, so it's like, um, is your place almost like providing the clean slate for new immigrants, or
4: I would not say that no, no. <laughs> Bobby's not political mm. uh, except for <clears throat> it is political to make decisions to uh, to Build a community within the, your business relationships, which for us means supporting local farms, and really, uh, you know, that's all sounds good, but it's it's a there's there's a lot of detail to that, mm. and a lot of communication and relationship building that has to happen over a long time, and farmers, especially 20 years ago, really don't you know historically farmers don't trust other people. Mm. And part of the reason for that is because farmers really have to work very, very hard. And, and people, I, I think it's very much underappreciated how much weather and hours and what time you have to get going in the mm. morning and all of the planning that goes through farming and, and the sort of risks involved and, and getting it to market and choosing what to sell and what not to sell. <clears throat> it's a very big job. mm And I think that farmers often feel very underappreciated.
1: It's almost uh, exploited. (laughs) And it's probably... It's
4: sort of invisible. mm -hmm. But, you know, they're obviously uh, farming is very, very important.
1: Right. I think that's the beginning, almost the beginning of the time New York City started to have green markets and uh, CSA maybe. Yes. So it was pre-educational time for farming. Yeah. Right. So that's amazing. You already started back then.
4: Yeah, well, I, I grew up in a place that had that available.
3: Right.
4: So and it really uh, it really was about just getting the best things. The strawberries, local strawberries are always better than ones that are flown in from California or Mexico.
3: Mm,
1: right. So, um, so what are the examples that you make from scratch at Bubby's?
4: Well, we make... Jam, soda pop, pie, pie crust. We make everything, really. Mm. Uh, You know, we used to make all of our own bacon. (laughs) uh, 1,100 pounds a week. (laughs) But it's it's Tribeca, and so that was causing a lot of issues for the neighbors. So we have somebody upstate in Sullivan County that does that for us.
1: Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. Right.
4: But the... You know, so the big things like that. So I mean, we really try to make everything from scratch. We I make root beer, uh, (laughs) you know, anything. But we also just you know really try to use local ingredients as much as possible and look at good farming practices that are sustainable in smaller Mm.
1: operations and things like that. Well, that's amazing. Nowadays, people started to cure meat and make vinegar and those things, but. Even twenty years ago, no just, no it's most uh, thirty years ago
3: <laughs> yeah
1: you started it so I had no clue how it, it's feasible to make root beer in a restaurant
4: <laughs> well you just have to do it
1: <laughs> right okay so um so who who come to uh, bubbies in New York what kind of customers?
4: well, so many people many many co- different customers we have a lot of local people and Kids, families, business people, tourists, movie stars, lots of famous people.
1: Right, mm. it really shows that Bobby's menu is so universally appealing.
4: It, I think, Bobby's menu is universally appealing. Even you know, we have six stores in Japan, and it's very much loved in Japan.
1: Mm. Right, so. Let's get into Sorry to that. jump
4: to Japan, but I'm just thinking about how universally...
1: Yeah, right, right. Well, I, it really totally makes sense because I really didn't know until recently that you have expanded to Japan. Yeah. So it's
4: our 10th anniversary this year. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. How did I not know? <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about uh, Bubbies in Japan. So how did it start <laughs> in the first place?
4: Well, it started... With uh, my partners, reached out to me mm-hmm. uh, just completely out of the blue because uh, JR East wanted mm-hmm. to celebrate the 150th anniversary of Commodore Perry coming to Yokohama Harbor.
1: Mm. So, b- and, by the way, J.R. East is a former national railway company. Now it's broken into semi-private right I mean, private. So they have a lot of uh, promotional events.
4: They have a lot of promotional events, and they have a lot of uh real estate uh, that they you know so the, they wanted to use this space to celebrate the relationship and to get an authentic American restaurant to mm. be in you know in this uh, plaza in Yokohama
1: right. well actually um, because I, like you said it's owned by originally owned by national government so there are a lot of space along the old railway stations which is pretty, active and yes. it's kind of like uh, you know it's really the key transportation method in Japan yes well,
4: right. 85% of the population lives within you mm. know, a mile of a railroad right. railroad station
1: I yeah think. oh by the way I, I <laughs> whenever I go to Japan I have no intention to shop anything but just like walking around you know before getting on the train or you know Shinkansen I just end up buying a lot of stuff because so many good shops and events going on
4: yeah amazing
1: yeah so anyway so so the jail east came to you
4: yes uh and at first i really i didn't think that i was so interested in it uh and they really they you know they they really convinced me to just fly over and look at the project and you know it's it seemed interesting mm. and they really they you know all of my interactions with with my Japanese partners from the very beginning have been uh, you know really based on goodwill and trust and everybody just going along with so it's been a good experience in that Mm.
1: way. Well um, I would assume someone came to Bubby's in Tribeca and had a good time.
4: Yes Uh, well my sort of counterpart in in Tokyo uh, grew up in New York City. Uh, oh. His father owned a restaurant in New York uh, called uh, Nirvana. Right. And oh. uh, so his name is Warren.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, Warren Wadud. And, you know, Warren really grew up coming, you know, coming to Bubby's when he was younger, going mm. to school. Mm. And he he really he seemed convinced when when jr approached my partner's mrs uh, he he convinced he was convinced when they approached him that bubby's would be a good fit and he really did make it happen
1: mm, right so he's based in, in japan
4: he lives in tokyo now mm, yes he tokyo. has a family he's married to a japanese wife and
1: mm. Right. So, by the way, this uh, MRS is uh, it's a major um, company which owns 10 restaurants, including four brands from abroad. the uh, like Singapore, like the New Bern in New York, and uh, Prime 40, 42 by Nebraska Farms and the Bubbies.
4: And Singapore Seafood Republic. Right. They have a ramen shop. Um, right. Yeah. So,
1: it's really experienced, and they are experience in bringing foreign brands to japan as well yes Hi. Right. so but before the show we had a quick conversation about your perception about japan before this whole project so you said you used to hate japan everything japan
4: <laughs> well you know one for one thing i'm very lazy when it comes to learning something completely new so I've traveled a lot in my life, and I, and if I go to Italy or France or Spain, I have a pretty deep understanding of that culture. It's Western civilization. So when I first landed in Japan, I was completely confused, but only for the first six or seven years, really. <laughs> um, but I just I really could never understand what was going on. And it felt very much like one of those things that you have to sort of squint your eyes and stare at and I never could figure those out mm. uh, so I think one day I, I really was just walking along in uh, in Aoyama and something clicked with me that everything just seemed beautiful and perfectly in balance I don't know what happened huh. but after that I've been very much obsessed but even before that you know I, as an artist i really discovered the beauty of japanese materials and paper and ink and uh pigments watercolors and and as we were talking about before i you know developed a, a very sort of deep relationship with this uh, artist hokusai
1: mm, so and hokusai cuz is hokusai he's uh, from the edo period yeah and he painted a lot of um beautiful kind of like you know manga. Uh, yeah, right. So it's a kind of comic. He
4: invented th- manga, really, right? Right. Kind of.
1: And uh, I think there's a museum in the Kanazawa. Yeah. And have you been there? Yes. Yeah, I I couldn't believe how much I got into him.
4: He's amazing.
1: Mm. So it's really he depicts beautiful daily life of human be- beings in Japan as well as nature. Yes. Like oceans and.
4: Yes, Fuji.
1: Right.
4: And. Yes, everything just sort of regular life and you could really see that he even though he was a sort of national treasure everybody just ignored him mm. and he just was off to the side observing.
3: Right.
4: So he's, he's very <clears throat> uh, simpatico, interesting and you know also had a very wild life and his daughter ended up just sort of following around taking care of him in the last years of his life but mm. you know he was married a lot of times and uh, he just seemed to sort of throw himself out there mm-hmm. <clears throat> fully.
1: Right. Actually, there is a, a animation uh, about his daughter too.
4: Oh, yeah, I want to see that.
1: <laughs> yes, I think it's a there was a subtitle. So but I, I, th- I think
4: also the, wh- another interesting thing about him is that he really is. W- when Japan did open up to the West, Hawksay was. The artists that really migrated to Europe and sort of there was a, a real introduction of Japan, and that had a very deep impact on all kinds of art in Japan. Mm. Matisse and uh, you know a, a lot of different you know er, not Matisse but
1: right. Uh, well, I'm you not, see uh, those
4: artists, but early mm-hmm. you know impressionists.
1: Right, artists. right. I think uh, that's really true. It's really widely, it's not just a few.
4: No, like everybody.
1: Right. So, okay. And uh, so, sounds like you clicked with the artistic side of Japan.
4: Yes, Mm. very much.
1: Right. And uh, you also mentioned coffee.
4: Coffee. I love it. I mean, (laughs) I love the coffee scene in Japan. I think what I was really mentioning is just, I went to some little farmer's market and there were probably eight different, very small coffee producers pouring, you know, pouring coffee in their own little way. <sighs> and also there just there was this woman who at, at Skiji before it turned over, you know, before the market moved and really maybe 8 or t- 10 years ago when I was first there, she must have been making coffee in Skiji for
3: mm. for 50
4: years. So I don't know. It's a it seemed like a very deep subject mm. in Japan. Right.
1: Coffee. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, actually um, yeah, it's a uh, about commitment to the quality and it was almost like you have to it's like a meditative mindset in a
3: way.
4: Well, I I met this man once, I think he has a company called Life Coffee and in Tokyo and he's been importing coffee from Brazil since the 1950s. Mm. He himself went there and just found the right coffee to import and oh, wow. you know, he's like a sort of Zen master of coffee.
1: Mm, that was a totally before, a long time before the third wave coffee. <laughs> yes, it's
4: just yes, it's first wave coffee.
1: Mm, right. <laughs> he was doing first the third wave in the first wave. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, let's uh, take a quick break here, and when we come back, uh, let's discuss uh, your interesting experience in Japan more. So, listeners, please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit korean.com.
2: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Andrew Friedman, and I'm the host of Andrew Talks to Chefs here on HRN. Every week, I interview a diverse cross-section of the best and biggest names in professional cooking. Give a listen and get to know all about the inner lives of chefs. You can find Andrew Talks to Chefs wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Aki Koteyama, and my guest today is Ron Silver, the chef owner of Bubbies in New York City, as well as six locations of Bubbies in Japan. So, um, so, what was the biggest challenge in opening Bubbies and operating Bubbies in New York and uh, in Tokyo?
4: Well, <clears throat> there were so many challenges. <laughs> I
1: kind of expected it.
4: Uh, <laughs> I mean first of all I I I'm I'm sort of famous for not the best thing in Japan which is a you know um like when we first started the Bubby's crew in Japan came and trained for 3 weeks mm-hmm. uh and I was very adamant because I kind of had heard some things I was like you you guys have to use fresh Ingredients mm. for everything.
1: Right. Well, by the way, it's licensing, so it's the whole concept of the menu, fresh ingredients, and the classic American, and that's the core.
4: Yes. American food made by hand and with some attention to uh, what's going on. Mm. So, uh, you know, I was very, very clear about the freshness of everything and. Uh, you know, one of the things that they said is that lemons are very expensive in, in Japan. Mm. It's like, well, then you have to charge more for the lemonade, but you have to use it fresh, lemons for sure. So what the day that they got back, they went to work and uh, the, the F&B purchasing guy called me directly. And he said, by fresh, do you mean frozen? And I was like, no,
3: <laughs> I don't.
4: And so he said, okay. And so the next day he called me and said, by fresh, do you mean canned? And I said, said, excuse my language. (laughs) I I said, I mean fucking fresh. (laughs) And so I was very adamant about it. And Mm -hmm. I said that a whole bunch of times. Mm. And so when I showed up to the opening, there was a sign in the plaza that said, fucking fresh lemonade. (laughs) And in the restaurant, it said "fucking fresh food," and I was like, "All right, I'm I'm happy about that because I think they really understood what I was saying." Mm. So, but you know, there were many, many, many language issues about what fresh is, or not to serve, say, salad with pancakes, and um, all kinds of little weird things Mm. to try to understand. And I think that over time, it's very much been uh, um, a learning on both sides uh, about what is good and also a real, re- I have a real relationship with the chefs there, the baker there, uh, the purchasing guys. You know, every, we, we all, it's been 10 years and we have a real relationship. And at, at first, we, there were, there is I mean, Bubby's is not a normal business. I don't have, lot of standard operating procedures written out and Mm. um i'm sure they had never worked with anybody you know as unprofessional as i am in their lives
1: (laughs) artist (laughs) yeah Mm. but it's it's great that you have to be stubborn because you know i think there are many brands from this country brought into japan and it's kind of localized too much that you don't see the identity of the original concept it's kind of like totally smooth out and well
4: a lot of sentences start out with the japanese people like this i'm like dude you brought us over here let's just do what you know let's offer them this other thing they will like it mm. so and, and it really has it's you know, many brands go to Japan from America, and not very many do well. And it really—it's not a, just a question of support; it's not a question of all the time about management. Although those are very important things—who you go into business with—and you know, I, I really have the best partners to to be in business with because they—they they, over time, over this time we've really grown a mutual trust and respect for each other, and. Uh, you know, I, I've really come to understand the Japanese way of thinking about doing business, which is much more based on honor and handshakes mm. and uh, integrity. And I really do appreciate that very much.
1: Mm. So it takes time to establish that kind of trust-based relationship. But once it's established, it really is solid. So well, it's,
4: it's like a lifelong relationship.
1: Right. Just yes. like lifetime employment.
4: <laughs> well, you know, that 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 whole idea is a very tricky idea, <laughs> the lifetime employment idea, mm-hmm. which is big in Japan right. uh, in a way. And not necessarily always the best thing if you need to get somebody out of the way because they're,
3: mm-hmm.
4: you know, one bad apple can ruin a whole team spirit. Right. And so that's that's been a, a big subject for us of, of how to sort of move people out of the way.
3: Mm.
4: You know, it, it takes time to build a solid team. And and in Japan, just like very much like in New York City, we have a solid team. Mm. We have people in Japan that have worked there from day one. Right. And, you know, they, I, I, they text. I mean, we, we we're friends. Mm. I, I'm friends with these guys. And so and they've spent so much time here in new york and i've spent so much time with them there that we really have a good relationship
3: Mm,
1: right so yeah um i think uh well that's that lifetime employment concept it's kind of risky too but i think in a way if you have a basic ease of being here as a valuable individual people try to contribute more if you are staying in a good place. So that was, I think, that worked, like my father's generation after World War II, but now I think it's kind of like everything is becoming different.
4: Well, I, I do think it's a very good policy to, for companies to take their people seriously and to not just look at them as a commodity that can come and go. Mm. I just think at a certain point, if somebody, I, I've just seen where people are actually doing harm to the company, and s- there's just a long, 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 long response time on that. Mike. But as opposed to in America, we'll just fire somebody because they sort of have messy hair, which I obviously would be fired every day <laughs> of my life. So I, I but I, I sw- like all of the things in Japan. I think they re- it requires patience. To not just say, "Well, get rid of that guy," uh, it requires having to work with somebody, and it also just requires not having to mm. have things perfect all the time.
1: Right. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's just the. It is no right answer, right? But, you know, it's the kind of differences in which value to prioritize. Well, well
4: I and I and I think that there's everything to be said about building communities that are solid and not under in fear all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I don't like the American way of doing things Mm. in that way. So I've come to very much appreciate Japanese philosophy on, even on lifetime employment, Mm. even though I know that I'm going to kill myself for saying (laughs) that later.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, So, um, you know, that's a result of the 10 year relationship. So do you still have to, adjust the menu for the local palette or preference
4: we do you know some of that has been sneaky because i've had to like sneak kirby cucumbers in to get pickles mm. uh, and get these guys in hiroshima to grow them Ooh. and then we also use these Hirosh- hiroshima lemons for lemonade when they're in season which are amazing lemons and we also make Hiroshima lemon meringue pie, and also the, the uh, apples in Almori. We have a very good relationship with the apple guys mm. in Aomori. And uh, we now have a, a new weird relationship with these ume farmers in Wakayama,
3: mm.
4: where you know, I've found my, the love of my life is the ume plum.
1: Mm, so Umeboshi usually it's a salt cured
4: Yeah so 80% of the ume is turned into ume, Umeboshi mm-hmm. and then the rest basically is turned into sort of umeshu or little snack little pastes or things like that. Mm-hmm. but I, I really and they flew me there just to try to think about it in a different way and I really I feel like I did do that. Mm. And now I really am in a giant relationship with these wakayamans. Wow. Uh, which I, I, I love it down there. It's so <laughs> weird that right. place.
1: So for listeners who's not familiar with umeboshi, umeboshi has saltiness and some good acidity. And it's almost like act as a flavorful salt in terms of, you know, yes, imparting the flavor. Thing to that you through.
4: put on a salad or have for breakfast, maybe just a little weird salty. Mm-hmm fermented thing
1: mm. and people used to use it as you know they put it in the middle of a white rice because it killed oh, germs right yeah so
4: well and it also has a lot of good health benefits apparently a lot of antibacterial
3: mm. health
4: stuff I don't know This the, the ume is an amazing thing
1: right so ume per day uh, makes you living longer <laughs> kind they, of thing they say that right yes right so um, so The customers are, everybody in in Japan?
4: We get a lot of Japanese customers and we get a lot of expats. uh, And, um, you know, it's, I mean, we we have six restaurants there. So each place has a different sort of, Mm. you know, customer base. Right. Yeah.
1: Five in Tokyo, in uh, you know, in the middle of like you know, cool area, office buildings.
4: Kichijoji. Right. That's more
1: like residential, like Brooklyn of yeah Tokyo.
4: And uh, Roppongi Hills, Mm. uh, Shibuya.
1: Mm. Right. So probably you cover all the population from young to old, to cool to families.
4: Well, and people, you know, in Japan things become just sort of trendy, so pancakes is a big thing in J- in in Japan at the moment or has been for the last while. Eggs Benedict, a lot of things that we do. Mm. Pie. Right. And, you know, Bubby's has had a good impact on the sort of a, the American food scene in mm. Japan, in Tokyo, I think.
1: I'm glad you're doing it because I think Tokyo, not not just Tokyo, but Japan tend to have more classic European pastry to french italian yes but then somehow american food doesn't get sort of like well they
4: have the denny's and then the <laughs> sort of knock off jonathan's kind of you know but that level of food really does get a short well right, a little
1: more you know mixed with japanese flavors That's too True. yes so you are really showing what american food is culturally too
4: yes and i think that we're very much like i said trying to interact with agriculture and the, the communities to sort of really be participating in that way as well
1: mm. so i think that's another way you're inspiring you know uh, the whole community society because you're directly growing cucumber yeah, and but
4: they're not <laughs> that happy about bringing these new genetics in oh really Yeah, in fact, I probably shouldn't even talk about it because they'll probably come get me in the night,
3: these guys.
4: (laughs) You know, like I sent packets of seeds and they grabbed them in the mail. Mm. So then I brought them with me.
1: There's no evidence.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're the evidence of the genetics of the cucumbers that are growing in Hiroshima right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. Maybe someone else did. it. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. Right. So, okay. And so how often do you get to visit Japan?
4: Uh, Twice a year. mm Mostly. Sometimes I go one more time, but. Mm. So is I that the mandatory? In, I usually go in uh, April or May. This year I have an art show in. Uh, I don't even remember where. Somewhere in Cool. Mm. Uh, and so I'm going in May and going down to Wakayama. And then. The plum. <laughs> I go in September or October.
1: Mm. So is that a part of the the agreement, licensing agreement? Yes. yes. Nice. Yeah. Wow. So um so how um do you have any other outside kitchen experience with Japan? Like you know, good or bad, crazy experience with the Japanese culture?
4: What do you mean by that?
1: Um you know you had a really negative view to now you're becoming almost like internalized concept yes, I mean,
4: like i said it was all very foreign to me and i had a lot of judgments uh, on how things were set up especially in a, in a way i i mean i i had particular a weird reaction to how ja- how japanese women are treated in general mm. and i felt judgmental about the sort of lack of clarity in communication mm. and I really had no understanding of the history of Japan so it was like very much just being someplace that I had no idea what was going on and then at some point I really did start to understand what was going on And
1: mm. maybe Hokusai showed you the history Hokusai, <laughs> Yes,
4: I love him so much
1: mm. right. so it's good that uh, you're an artist and there's a connected point that you found that's yes. really um Quintessential Japanese—that's hokusai. So
4: yes, I have this art show in Osaka mm. in uh, in May. So and a lot of it is is on washi, the the stuff. Oh on,
1: wow, Well Japanese paper? Yeah. Right. Okay. Maybe we should do another episode about your artist audience side of it. Um, okay. So. Um, what do you think about bringing an American-Russian concept to Japan? Like, you know, if somebody is thinking about it, you know, maybe my brand goes to Japan. Do you have anything that you'd advise what to keep in mind?
4: Well, I'd say that it's a it's a very, it's not an easy thing to pull off. And you have to very, very much go in with an open mind. And like you said, be a little stubborn and clear about what you really want and you know help to make it happen i i think that uh, i think it's really a question of building good relationships and making sure that you enter into it with the right people to you know which is always the tricky part of any partnership
1: mm, right so the existence of one who you
4: Warren is a a very, very big deal. Warren really communicates all of my thoughts. Warren understands me really well. Mm. Uh, We speak all the time. And, you know, he kind of is my agent. (laughs) You know, it's like, and I I am not, I mean, I'm a liability a lot of times. Warren really manages me every step of the way. And Mm. also makes sure that I get what I, you know, what I want or... You know, need not, I, I really try to not be too.
1: Right. Maybe he's feeling responsible because he's the one who's invited here. Well, anyone. he
4: totally did. He is responsible. You know, he really did a great job and right. continues to do a great job.
1: Mm. So, the local partner that you can yes, trust.
4: Yes, 100%.
1: Right. Okay. So, what's your plan with Bubbies? Are you opening more Bubbies in Japan here or anywhere?
4: Uh, that's a good question. I'm open to it. Bubbies is doing really, really, really well. Um, better than ever. And I'm inclined to enjoy that before piling on a bunch of stuff. I also have, uh, I also have this cannabis business and I'm, I'm working with introducing that uh, CBD to Japan. Mm.
1: Oh, wow. So I That's hate to pop
4: that out at the end of the interview, but that is, is a very it, big deal.
1: Is it possible? Because it is. Ah.
4: Yes. And for the
1: medical appeal.
4: Well, the, I mean, it's a very large conversation. It's legal, it's going to happen, and uh, it's exciting. And I think it's going to help Japan a lot.
3: Mm. And quite
4: frankly, they should legalize weed as well. Because the reason it's not legal there is because of American manipulation. Mm. And it would very much help the aging population in Japan mm-hmm. to take a bunch of bong
1: hits. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, even New York City, they just kind of banned edible. CBD used in it
4: really makes me mad, but we're really going to do something to try to change that. Mm.
1: Yeah, right. So that's relaxation uh, effect. That's I think is also
4: anti-inflammatory. There's a lot of benefits to it, but the point is, is that you know rather than opening up new restaurants at the moment, I'm very much focused on that. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens.
1: Right. So you have a trust in the power of CBD, which kind of changes community.
4: A hundred percent, yes.
1: So wh- where did that idea come from?
4: Well, I've, I mean, I've, uh, I have been using cannabis since I was about two. Mm. <laughs> so that idea came from somewhere outside of myself,
1: mm. I suppose. Right. Yeah, I think uh, it's good for the government if it's, you know, THC or CBD. You know, I think it's uh, rather than going to somewhere else, well, it's go to insane, the. Government.
4: It's an insane thing to have it be illegal. That's a whole discussion.
1: Right. Yeah, it's the same as maybe alcohol, like prohibition that we experienced.
4: Yes, but alcohol only has one use, which is to get drunk. And, Mm. uh, you know, cannabis has many, 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 many applications.
1: Right. Without that kind of excessive consumption of alcohol, leading to so many different... Well,
4: especially in Japan, if you picture walking through Roppongi at (laughs) night, two in the morning, you see some very nasty things. Mm. Businessmen, you know, passed out in the street. Right. You know.
1: Yeah. And uh, on the last train, almost everybody was half asleep. Yes. Subway. So, yeah, that's interesting. There should be another way for people, stressed out, Japanese people, to relax.
4: There is. It's coming.
1: Okay, so... Please, keep me posted. All right. All right. So uh, where can we find you, uh, your latest update online?
4: Uh, I have no idea. I don't really know. Bubbies, the Bubbies.com, mm-hmm. yes.
1: Right. But, and uh, and so, uh, the Japanese one's Bubbies.jp. Right. I found. And, uh, okay. And uh, your uh, CBD product? That's uh, Yeah,
4: our CBD product is called Azuka. Mm-hmm. And you can find that at Azuka.co.
1: It's A-Z-U-C-A.co. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lauren. So please keep me posted. Thank you. So uh, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the shows or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at mm-hmm. Japanese at the Heritage Radio Network.org or, or akikwatema.com. In Japan is just live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at Heritage Video Network.org, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.